testimonies for several weeks now. Last week we had Brother Hank's testimony, and he ran off the road and found God. Um, this week, Kendall ran off the road and found God. You don't have to run off the road and have a car accident to find God. Although, God speaks through those kind of things. I'm just going to ask because I'm one of them. I'll even raise my hand twice because of the way mine worked. But how many of you have had a major wreck or accident and God spoke to you right through all that? Okay? How many of you? Yeah, so wreck, wreck. I know Cody's not here, but he'd, he'd testify to that. So uh, how many of you? Kendall was, was talking about how he, uh, you know, um, didn't have any broken bones or anything, but that God had done uh, some work through him while he was in the hospital. So how many of you have been in the hospital and God's had to speak to you through that hospital stay? Right? So he speaks to us through that. But it's great, isn't it, how God, it's exactly what Kendall's talking about. He throws a net around us and pursues us, and uh, there's a term in, in theology called irresistible grace, where God says, you know what, we're in relationship, just like Kendall said, and I am going to pursue you. Now, we're studying that in real detail. Uh, this Wednesday night, we're looking at Jonah, who is clearly the New Testament, the Old Testament picture of second chances. So I'd invite you to come Wednesday night to have supper with us at uh, 545, almost got that wrong, at 545, and then uh, at 630 we'll have a little prayer time, and at 7 o'clock I'll start uh, work through Jonah chapter 2, which is going to be actually the passage where Jonah is repenting of his missed first chance. Um, he's doing that from the belly of a great fish, um, but he's still going to do it, and it's a great repentance story in chapter 2. So I'd invite you to be there. It ties in real well with what we're talking about in our second chances. This morning I want to talk about three questions they're on your handout. We're just going to look at them quickly at these three questions since it's already 12.14 according to our clock back there. I've got to hurry. Uh, but uh, the first one is, why can I count on God to give me second chances? I'm about 80% sure, 90% sure that everybody in this room could answer that question. Um, most everybody that I know personally, you could answer that question uh, in different ways and you would come up with pretty good answers. Uh, what I'm trying to do today is give you a package of information that you can store to minister to other people with. Um, you should be able to tell God. you got people that are in desperate or hard or difficult situations, people that are in great situations, but you know they're running the wrong way. You've got to be able to tell them God's searching for you and longing to reach out to you and give you another chance. So let me just answer these questions for you and give you some information that really will help you today. The first reason He's going to give you a second chance is because He loves you. It's very simple. God loves everyone that is created. He loves us all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, I spent a number of years uh, going to Holman Prison, uh, in prison ministry there. And uh, I used to say I spent a number of years in prison and that never sounded good uh, to people. It kind of freaked them out. But uh, I was in prison in, in the Monday evenings for a while. Uh, go behind ten steel doors and, and meet with a bunch of guys on death row. Um, and they were there because they had done horrible things. Um, and uh, I got to know eight or ten of them really close and uh, close personal friends. Several of them have been executed now. But um, they were strong Christian men. They had come to Christ. They had found the Lord in prison. They had uh, rededicated their life to the Lord and had become evangelists inside those prison walls. The only place they were ever going to see the rest of their life. And uh, so it was really challenging for them. But it was amazing to me to just realize God loves everybody. He loves all the men in that prison. Sometimes we go down to the population, what they call the population, the general population, and uh, minister to those guys and walk around with them in, in the little places where they get to uh, do their crafts and all that kind of stuff. 
And uh, it was really phenomenal for me to just walk through prison and go, man, these guys are here because they've done some really bad stuff. And God loves everyone. I'm just like He loves me. It's not because I'm a good kid. You know, it's not because I'm a good guy. There are no good guys. So the number one reason you can tell anybody that God wants to give you another chance at life or another chance in whatever they're struggling with is because He loves everyone. The second reason is because He wants us to be blessed. you got to understand, when God created mankind, it was for His glory and our good. Those are the two things that were supposed to happen in the garden. He gets the glory, we get the good. We get blessed by being His children and doing what He asks us to. And He gives a little instruction into the garden. Hey, Genesis 2.16, you can freely, freedom, freely eat of all this good stuff. Just don't eat that one over there. That's all. Great deal for us. Of course, being fallen, you know, being stupid. You know, we went and ate the wrong thing. Got ourselves in trouble. And I've taught this through this whole lesson, but even when we sinned against God and broke His laws, and He could have just crushed us, He said instead, you know, there's going to be consequences to what you have. And there were these consequences that were very painful. Everybody's going to die. Every child that Adam and Eve would ever have would die now. They weren't going to die. We were going to live eternally. They, but now, because of sin, they're going to die because the consequences of, of sin is death. But God said, but before all that, I'm going to make sure there's generations that are born. And in, in, in the seed of this woman is going to be born the one who will crush the head of the serpent, who will literally take out the enemy for good one day. And that's Jesus Christ. We sung of Him uh, hanging on that cross. So God wants everybody to be blessed by serving Him. I'm going to expand on that a little bit later in the, in the message, but I just want you to realize that that all these testimonies, you heard Larry's testimony a few weeks ago and Lisa's testimony before that. I'm going to try to redo hers because the sound was really bad. That was my fault on that one. But I really want to redo hers sometime and try to get these up on some sort of a YouTube page or something for our church so we can just share people's our own testimonies on there. Um, but um, when you listen to all that, you see that, that God gave Larry new purpose in his life. God gave Lisa new purpose in his life. Kendall, God had called Kendall for a purpose and Hank for a purpose, and they had to wrestle with some things, and really they went out of bounds, and God God didn't just go, well, you're out of bounds now. He, he called them back. He gave them another chance, and He called them back. Um, they, they sinned, and they confessed their sins, and they dealt with it, and God led them to be great people. You know, after King David, man after God's own heart, after King David had sinned against God, he, he had an adulterous affair uh, with a married woman, and then ultimately had her husband killed. So he's a He's an adulterer and a murderer, and he's a liar and deceiver because of the way he did all that. Even after all that, God had a, a bit of grace with him, and when David confessed his sins to God, um, God restored David back to, to what he was supposed to be. Um, and God, God gave him another chance to follow him. You know, uh, Rahab, the harlot in the Old Testament, she's a great example of somebody that's a second chance person. It's a, it's a simple study. She was just a woman that was... Uh, prostitute in a in a very evil city, um, Jericho. A, a city so evil that God said when you cross over in the Jordan and you get onto, my side, get onto your land, Israel's land, you're going to have to just wipe them out totally. Just wipe them out. Now they got that fortified city, so it was a big challenge. Of course, God had a plan for all that, which was miraculous and interesting. How He let the walls come crumbling down. Her house is in the wall, by the way. It's in the wall. And when the walls came down, she was spared. She was spared because she had shown favor to the Israelite spies that had gone in, and God showed grace to this, this uh, prostitute that had lived a terrible life in a terrible town in a terrible way. 
And God just showed her an amazing amount of grace. And when you trace her lineage now, she becomes a, a, a proselyte of Israel. Now she becomes part of Israel. They welcome her into the family. Um, but when you trace her lineage, she is in the lineage of King David, which is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. You go, man, you talk about second chances and grace. That's how grace works, um, is that God gives us tremendous amount of grace and love when He shows that uh, He just wants to rescue people. You know anybody at work, you know anybody at your school, you know anybody in your neighborhood, in your personal family that's just on, on a terrible road, and their life is just miserable. You know what you can promise them? You know what you can promise them as my friends and Christians? God wants them to have a second chance at it. God wants to bless them and help them, and He longs to do that through His grace and His love. So just as a reminder, just kind of a side note, we worship and serve a life-giving God, not a life-taking God. Um, I told you at the beginning of this series, I get very frustrated when people give God a bad rap. They look in the Old Testament at a few isolated examples where there's massive amount of judgment, and they go, see, there's God, you know, just just being a cruel, mean judge, horrible person. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible, cover to cover, the story of the Bible is that He is a life-giving God. I'd like you to, in Genesis 2, 7, He breathes life into man and, and tells man you can inhabit the whole earth and, and enjoy all this life that I've created around you. But I'd like you to go to John 10, verse 10. If you have your own Bible, I'd really like you to turn there and sort of be a verse you underline. Something you ought to meditate on real regularly. John 10, verse 10. It's a passage where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd of us and uh, He's really saying He's the shepherd of, of Israel, His chosen people, and that there's a whole nother flock of people He's going to welcome in. That'd be the Gentiles, that's us. Uh, the Protestants, as it were. We're going to be welcomed in. And uh, But in verse 10 and 9, He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through Me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus literally came to earth to die on the cross and pay for our sins to give us abundant life. I don't know many Christians that are living abundant life, by the way. We tend to get messed up and wallow in our own mess and we get a lot of self-pity going and we kind of kind of begin to, to think that it's never going to be any good. It's one of the things I liked about Ken, the end of Kendall's testimony. He was saying, I'd already printed this sermon out, he was saying, you know, we get People get freaked out by what's going on in the world and they get all discouraged and depressed. And that may be true. And, and you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of things in our society that are not going well. But in reality, if you're a follower of Christ, your hope is in Jesus, not in all our society. You don't need to hope in our government or hope in our, you know, school systems or hope in any of that. You don't need to hope in, you know, the, the, Center for Disease Control, you need to hope in Jesus. Jesus is the one that has the promise for you. And His promise is abundant life. It's literally joy, hope, and peace. I'd like you to just write that down. In Galatians 5, there's this beautiful little passage where He says, here are the works of the flesh, and uh, it lists all these sins. And then in Galatians 5.22, it says, but here are the work, fruit of the Spirit. If you follow God's Spirit and obey His Spirit, that He places in you when you get saved, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness, kindness, temperance. It's all the, all the things that make abundant life. You know what God promised every one of us? Abundant life. Not boring lives, not miserable lives, not 
I don't know if we're going to make it lives. And that's how a lot of Christians live lives. I just don't know if I'm going to make it. Okay, the truth is we can celebrate a joy that's in us even in our trials. Remember Paul and Silas in, in the book of Acts? Paul and Silas were, were uh, terribly beaten. They were preaching the gospel and they got terribly beaten in Philippi and put in jail. Um, and, and it actually says they put them in the inner dungeon of jail. It's like don't even lock them up in the regular jail. Why don't you take them down to the worst part? It's like you know that little cave in the very back that you know people are scared to go in because there's big old rats back there and all kinds of stuff and there's noises and it's so dark you can't even see with a candle back there. That's where Paul and Silas need to be locked up and put them in you know stocks, lock them up good back there. And you know what they remember what they were doing? Somebody said, "What were they doing in jail that night? Singing, singing." You know why? Because their physical experience of pain and suffering that day did not change the joy of the blessing of knowing the gospel. So they sang to the Lord. And, and all of a sudden, by the way, you know, the doors were open and there's a, an earthquake and, uh, they led the Philippian jailer to the Lord after he tried to kill himself. And, and, uh, there's a lot of, and they baptized him and then they went right back to jail and locked themselves back up. So the next day they're still in jail. And they could have all got free, beat up the jailers and all that. But no, the Spirit of God came in and said, Hey, abundant life, Paul. Joy, hope, and peace. It's okay. I know your back's killing you. I know you got flogged today. I know you're miserable down in this dark cave. Just sing to me, will you? Joy, hope, and peace. That's what God came to give us is joy, hope, and peace. A lot of people say, well, to do that, you got to be God's puppet. you got to be God's puppet. You know, God just He's just trying to create little robots and little... Little Christian robots and little puppets. That is so untrue. I found a verse finally that says that. Psalm 32, uh, verse 8 and 9. This ought to be another verse you underline. And when people tell you God's just trying to create little robots or little, uh, you know, just little models of Him out there that do His own thing, that is not at all what He wants. Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in a way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. There's His instruction. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding and must be controlled by a bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Um, God doesn't want to put bits and bridles in our mouth. He's actually saying, don't be a person that I have to control like that. I want you to have the freedom of the garden. I want you to be free. I want you to have a great life. And I don't want to have to deal with you like that. Why don't you just worship me and put me first in your life and listen, the whole passage, by the way, is saying, listen to my instructions. Where would I find God's instructions? Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. His Word is inspired. Um, all Scripture is inspired by God and it's given to us for instructions in righteousness. By the way, it says in that passage in Second Timothy 3, it says, God's Word will give you instruction and if you go off the path, it will give you correction and bring you back to the path. It'll rebuke you where you are to get you corrected. And then it'll show you how to get back on the path. And then it'll give you instructions for godliness and righteousness. The Word of God does all of that. If you spend time in the Word of God, not just reading it, by the way. I have several friends who are just really good eggheads in the Bible. They just don't ever obey it. They can tell you about everything it says. They just don't obey it. Um, it's not something they've yielded themselves to. And what God's saying is, I want you to have a great, blessed, joyful life. Okay, now, let me just be real clear. I am not preaching today that if you will just read your Bible and obey it, 
you know, tomorrow all your financial problems go away, all your physical problems go away, all your emotional and spiritual problems go away, and, you know, somebody's going to park a new car in your driveway and hand you the keys, and somebody's going to, you know, come by and paint your house for you, and somebody's going to come by and, you know, make sure they put the backyard pool in like you want, and you're going to get a Winnebago to go on vacation with and money to go. That's not how I'm saying it, okay? I'm not doing a health, wealth, and prosperity thing. I'm telling you that even if you're in suffering, you can celebrate the joy and you can have this inner peace. This inner peace. The peace that God promises in John 14, He says it's a peace that's um, not as the world gives. Not like the world. I'm going to give you a peace that actually says in Philippians is a peace that passes all understanding. I've talked to Christians that are going through tremendous suffering. I've helped parents bury children. That's just the worst thing in the world. You know, to help parents, especially little small children. I've stood by their gravesides and by their caskets and greeted all their friends and sat in their homes while we just cried and cried and cried. But I've watched them just be filled with peace that God has a bigger plan and God's joy can help me through this. And I've seen a joy in them that's unexplainable anywhere else but in Christ. So I want you to just get that in your head. Then lastly, I just want you to just, this is real simple. God wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be satisfied in Him, in life, but that satisfaction comes in Him. See if you can finish this sentence for me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not... Say it real loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not... Can you imagine not wanting? Or you just take that verse and go with it for a while. Just imagine not wanting. Being in such a peaceful place. Somebody once described it to me as... Uh, when a baby has has uh, woken up from a, a, a sleep and is hungry and gets fed by his mother, and he's just resting in his mother's arms, completely at peace. Just picture that little baby in his mother's arms, completely at peace. He's full, he's happy, and he feels so protected as he hears the heartbeat of his mother. He feels safe and protected. That baby has no wants. The Lord is my shepherd. Lord is your shepherd. You should not want. You shouldn't be scrounging and scrambling for all this. Oh Lord, I gotta have this and I need this and I want that. You shouldn't be all worked up over all that. If you really are satisfied in Him, you just can rest up against Him and say, You got this, don't you? You got this covered. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's why I can count on God to give me a second chance. Because He's a good, loving, and gracious, and merciful God. Because He wants to give us life, abundant life, and He wants me to be satisfied. When people ask you at church, why are you, or at work, why are you a Christian? Because God's a life-giving God, and He wants me to be satisfied. And I kind of like that. <laughs> I like getting that you know, benefit from Him. Because um, He loves me so much. So what does a second chance look like? Many of us have experienced them. And I just want to give you a quick overview today. Some are extremely dramatic. Some are extremely dramatic. Uh, uh, 1 Kings 18 be at the top of that list, really. An extremely dramatic second chance. Israel has been in a drought for three years. And Elijah, has the prophet, has prophesied that there would be a drought. He went to King Ahab, very evil king, by the way. Anybody remember Ahab's wife's name? Yeah, so anybody that married Jezebel, you know, just that's not smart always. Anyway, so King, king Ahab, king of Israel, is, is, has been a very bad king, 
and he's let the, the nation worship idols like crazy. And one of the idols they worship a lot is Baal, simply because, <laughs> I get this, they believe Baal controls the weather. This is Israel. Who actually controls the weather? Just say it out loud. Yeah, Jehovah God, our God, the one who created the earth and the stars and the universes and the moons that control the tides and all that. Our God does that. And, and Israel should know that. But they're in this three-year drought that's been predicted by one of their own prophets, a man of God. And they get freaked out in that and they start really, really worshiping a lot of Baal now. And they're going to Baal all the time saying, please make it rain, please make it rain, please make it rain. And God, God finally just tells Elijah, I want you to go up on the mountain. I want you to deal with this. And uh, it's a very dramatic deal when, when uh, Elijah gets to, to uh, the mountain. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about after many days that Elijah, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the face of the earth. And went, Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria. Um, and so then they have uh, th this opportunity now. Elijah goes up on the mountain and he says, it's a great story. I want you to read it. I'm not going to spend the time in the service to read it to you. Man, it's a great story though. Elijah says, look, here's the deal. Um, we're, I'm trying to call Israel back to what they should do. So, um, I want you to get all your prophets of Baal. There's 400 of those. And then your wife has these prophets to, of Asherah. And I want you to get those 450 prophets. That's 850 guys. I want all of them to show up on this mountaintop with me, Mount Carmel. And uh, we're going to build an altar, two altars. I want them to build their altar, and we're going to slaughter an a, a animal, and we're going to put it on the altar, and, uh, and, then we're gonna, and nobody's going to light anything. Okay, Don't light anything. We're just going to stand back and pray to see whose, whose sacrifice will be consumed by fire. Consumed by fire. And so, and you guys remember this story. It's a fantastic story in the Old Testament. So Elijah, Elijah gets them to do all that, and uh, and um, they, they get all together. And uh, then Elijah said to the people, um, Elijah says to everybody, "Look, since it's eight hundred and fifty to one, that's the odds of the game here. I'm going to let y'all go first. I'm going to let you go first. And the Bible says that those guys prayed all through the day. I mean, they got their altar ready, and then they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. It actually says this. It says they began jumping around and cutting themselves with swords and knives. Some of you young people think that cutting yourself is a new thing. It was an old thing, born out of a, a, a very evil culture. By the way, the people that, that worshipped Baal had to sacrifice their children uh, into the fires of the belly of Baal. They built these big old giant images, and in the belly of that image was a big roaring fire, and you just go throw your baby in. That's Baal worship, by the way. That's really, really bad. And uh, Baal worshipers would cut themselves all the time. And so God's, God's going to show up at this uh, mountaintop and help uh, Elijah, but Elijah's just watching. And at some point, Elijah just starts mocking him. It's really kind of a Christian uh, sarcasm that he's got going there, a, a religiously uh, honorable sarcasm before God, because he's going, hey, why don't y'all shout louder? Because it says they were getting louder. Why don't you shout louder? Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's gone away. One, one translation says, maybe he's relieving himself. He's gone to the bathroom. And he just can't hear you. That's the whole problem. You're just not shouting loud enough. So here they go, cutting and shouting. Nothing ever happens. And then, and then Elijah 
When, when it's his turn, he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get a bunch of seawater, because they didn't have water water back then. It was drought. I want you to get a bunch of seawater. I want you to haul up here and dump it all over my altar and dump it till it flows in these trenches. And they did that several times. So his, his altar soaking. There, theirs was, you know, dry as it could be. No fire. His altar soaking wet. And then Elijah says these words, so that you, he's not talking to the prophets of Baal. He's talking to Israel. He says, so that you will know that your God, our God, is the one true God. I want you to watch while I pray and you watch God consume this. Now, when you read his prayer, by the way, there's no shouting. He's not running around in panicky circles. He's not jumping up and down. You know, he's not making fire symbols to heaven. He literally just says, God, so that they know you're God. Will you just consume this thing? And boom, a 3,000 degree something <laughs> took out the altar. Or it took out the, the, the sacrifice. It actually says it was so hot that it took out the rocks. That's over 3,000 degrees to just take the rocks out into a crisp nothing. Boom! God goes, yep, got it. Done. So that, why? Israel would know. You know what he's doing? God's recalling Israel. He's recalling Israel back, saying, you guys have wandered astray. Come back. Come back. Sometimes God does it very dramatically. Come back. The car accidents kind of work that way. Um, those are pretty dramatic. I, I've rolled a car before down a ditch on Fire Tower Road that I really wish I hadn't have rolled. But it was God's way of telling me, you've lost your first love in me, and you need to just get rid of you know, your idol worship of your car. Really? That was painful, God. You could have just mentioned that in a note or something, couldn't you, rather than total the car? Nope, totaling the car. Showing you how. And it was God's way of teaching me. Sometimes God does it very dramatically. By the way, I know some of you are searching for direction in your life and you're trying to find help and you turn to all kinds of things. We turn to, to financial gain. We, we, we start looking for things just like these uh, Israelites. They were looking in all the wrong places for the answer when God was the answer the whole time. They were looking for all the wrong answers and sometimes we do exactly like that. We turn to, to all kinds of evil things. And, uh, you know, we, we'll even sell our, our values. We'll, we'll lose our values trying to find God's way or trying to find a way when God's saying, you don't have to do any of that. Just turn to me. Just turn to me. So God sent Elijah to display a limitless power, a limitless power and recall Israel. You understand the God you serve has limitless power? There's no limit. There's no way to even mark the power that he has. Sometimes God uh, speaks to us rather in uh, still small whispers. Still small whispers. By the way, when Israel had gone so far astray in that, in that uh, passage, um, God had tried to call them back numerous times and they were still going farther and farther. And so God sent a lot. Elijah had to do a bunch of crazy things and that was one of them. He had to go up on the mountaintop and uh, he had to rattle the cages of, of, and he ended up slaughtering all those prophets, by the way, down in the valley. There, but with all that drama, you know, God could have just consumed Israel at that point. He could have, He could have sent the fire not on the altar, but He could have just consumed His people and said, "You know what? I'm tired of you guys turning from me." But instead, He goes, "You know, I'm giving you another chance. I'm, I'm calling you back to me, rather than consuming you. I'm calling you back to me." 
But sometimes it's in still small voices. And uh, just one chapter later, 1 Kings uh, 19, verse 12, there's, there's the story where Elijah has gone on the run, by the way. Um, Jezebel was really unhappy with the fact that 850 prophets had been killed. Um, those were her prophets and her people. Um, and so she's an evil queen, uh, king of eight, or Ahab's wife. And so she's, she's on the hunt. And, and Elijah, after this great mountaintop experience, gets very depressed and uh, runs away. And, and it's a dramatic deal. He actually ran very, very fast. If you follow the scriptural uh, things there, it's an insane amount of running he did very fast. He outran a bunch of horses and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, he ends up in a place very depressed, and God has to speak to him. And in that place where God speaks to him, the Bible says um, Elijah just needed to hear from God. And God sent an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. And he sent a great and rushing storm. He wasn't in the storm. And it says there was this still, small voice in a whispering, blowing wind. One translation says in a, in a whispering, blowing wind. There was this still, small voice that spoke to Elijah. And sometimes, God speaks to us in a still, small voice. And, and He just wants us to get quiet and hear Him speak and know His voice. By the way, the passage in John 10 that we looked at, the abundant life passage, where He says He promises to give us life and that abundantly, He says a couple of verses later, My sheep know My voice. They know My voice. It's the still small voice that He speaks to us. We as His children should know how God sounds. We should know the voice of God and what that sounds like. So sometimes there are these loud, dramatic uh, recalls that God gives us for second chances. Sometimes He's just speaking truth and uh, speaking it right to us very quietly in a still small voice. And then some are very personal visits. Some are personal, loving visits. In John chapter 21, the Apostle Peter had made about every mistake you could make as a Christian, Jesus. He had um, tried to kill a man in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few days before. He literally, in the cause of Jesus, had drawn a sword and tried to cut Malchus's head in half. Now, Malchus was smart enough to move his head over a little bit and it just got his ear. <laughs> um, but by guarantee, Peter was not aiming for the ear. He was just going to split that guy's skull wide open. Um, for the cause of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus going, Peter, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. This is not the plan. We're not going to war with this little band of Jewish soldiers that have come to arrest me. I've actually got to be arrested. And so he's done that. Then he, and he was sleeping when he should have been praying in the garden. Just a few hours before that, he was talking back to Jesus when he should have been listening to Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to be tested. Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He was talking when he should have been praying, sleeping when he should have been, or talking when he should have been listening, sleeping when he should have been praying. Then he was trying to kill somebody when he should have just been following God's plan. And ultimately, he denies Christ three times. And then, after the resurrection, when Christ comes back, uh, Peter gets very discouraged. And it would be natural to do that. After all, he had really failed the Lord at insane levels. Not quite like Judas, but very similar in his heart. And uh, so, in John 21... There's a, a passage where Jesus has to go get Peter back. He recalls him. And some of you may relate to this because you may have been like Peter. At one point in your life, you'd given up and turned away from God. Is in Kendall's testimony that he kind of just said, you know what, I'm kind of done and you know, I'd like you to move on now. I want, to, I want out of this commitment. Well, when Jesus called Peter the very first time, he saw him on the seashore, he said, Peter, follow me. 
and I'll make you fishers of men. Remember that? Well, this John 21 is, is at the end of Jesus' earthly time. And in John 21, Peter has gone back to fishing. Um, after these things, uh, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples. Um, they were together, uh, Simon, Peter, and Thomas, and Didymus, and Nathaniel. It lists them all there. And in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Imagine that. Um, I, it, the Greek word is, I am going back to fishing. I'm going back to my fishing. That's what he did before. And so Peter's like, I'm done. I'm just going back to fishing. And uh, let's you know get our boats together. Let's sew up all the nets. And kind of, we know how to do this. We used to do it just a few years ago. So we get all our stuff, and all the disciples are following him. They're oh good. So here they go, and they go out and catch nothing. And so Jesus goes on the seashore, starts a little fire, bakes some bread, and calls out to them. It's fantastic what he does. Uh, when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they said, No. And he said, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. Not the wrong side, no. On the right side. And you will find a catch. They cast the nets and they were not able to haul it in because it was so great. And immediately Peter knew who it was because he's had that experience before. So he dives in and he swims to shore. And it actually says, Jesus made breakfast on the seashore for the disciples. He made fresh baked bread and fish. Um, bring some fish over. Let's put those on the coals here. Can you imagine a breakfast made by Jesus? I mean, my mother could make a serious breakfast. My mother and grandmother were awesome breakfast makers. Can you imagine Jesus making you breakfast? You know what he's doing, though? He's just being real personal with Peter. He's being real personal. You know what Peter needed? He needed to catch some fish. He needed to get his brain back in the game. So he goes, hey, let's see if we can catch some on the... Try the other... Cast it on the other side. He's like, haven't we heard that before? That's weird. Why don't we do that? Okay, try it. Oh, my goodness, we can't even pull the nets in. Oh, that's what it used to be like to be with him. It was just crazy stuff like that. So Peter swims to shore, and then they go for this walk. And they're walking down the beach, verse 12. Um, verse 12, Jesus says, come and have some breakfast. Um, so verse 15, when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said, uh, and, uh, and literally they're walking down the beach when this happens, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? not the disciples. A lot of people misinterpret that. It goes to the disciples. Jesus doesn't compare his love for one disciple to the next. The these are the boats. He's pulled all his fishing boats up on the dry, up on the beach there. All these boats with their nets hanging out, you know, full of fish. Here they are, and he's just walking down the beach going, Simon, do you love me more than these? Why are you back here fishing, son? What are you doing? And there's this great conversation where, where, uh, Peter and Jesus have to work through some wording issues. Um, Peter, Jesus says, do you love agape? That's the biggest word for love there is in the Bible. It's God's sacrificial, selfless love for... Peter, do you agape? Do you selflessly, sacrificially love me? And then Peter says a word that I remember... Um, in the English, it, it comes... It comes like the first time I ever told my wife on the porch at Southeastern Bible College overlooking the city. Beautiful night. And I just got the courage that my heart was pounding out of my chest. I said, Annette, I love you. And I mean, I, my heart is pounding out of my chest. But she's the one. You know what she said back? I like you too. 
I nearly committed suicide that night. Went back to my dorm and thought about taking my life. I was like, gosh, I've just ruined the greatest thing that ever happened to me. But that's what Peter says. Peter knows Jesus is looking right into his heart. And so Peter says, Lord, in the Greek he says, you know I really, 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 really like you. He can't say agape. He has to say Philadelphia love. You know, I, I really, really do like you a lot. Peter, do you, do you love me? Agape, second question. Peter, do you love me? Really? Hmm. Or do you know I really, 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 more? you know, I really like you. And then Jesus asked him a third time, Peter, do you really, 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 really like me? Because guys that really like me don't fish for fish anymore. That's really what he's saying. Peter, this is not you. If you really, really like me, you follow me. So he tells him, you know, Peter's grieved that he says a third time. Um, Jesus tells him to feed his sheep. He's telling, he's calling him back to ministry. In verse 19, now he said this signifying what kind of death uh, John would die to glorify God. When he said this, he had spoken. He said to Peter, verse 19, follow me. <laughs> Second recall, Peter's, Peter's been following Jesus, then he gets off the path, and, and Peter literally has to be recalled back to following him. By the way, when you read Peter's story in the book of Acts, the next book, um, he's so close to God that his shadow heals people. His shadow heals people. When he walks past and his shadow goes over sick people, they get well. So you think he starts following Jesus? Oh my goodness, he turns into this crazy preaching machine that 3,000 and 5,000 people at a time get saved. So much that Rome has to shut him down and when they get ready to crucify Peter, they crucified his wife first to get him to recant, which he wouldn't do. He just shouted to his wife from his little cage where he was being crucified and his wife being crucified in his presence. He shouted to her and he said, Remember Christ. Remember Christ. And then he was crucified and he said, Please don't crucify me like Jesus. I'm not worthy to die like that. That is such a beautiful picture of him. Did you just crucify me upside down, which they did? They crucified him upside down. Now that's the apostle Peter who needed another chance because he'd quit. And I believe sometimes God has to do that very personal. They're personal touches for us. Two things I want to leave you with. Are what am I supposed to do with this second, third, tenth, and fiftieth, and fifteenth, and hundredth chance that God gives me? Because I'm one of those guys, that's, I'm, I'm in my several hundreds of chances. Um, you know, they say most pastors quit every Monday <laughs> and then re-sign up on Tuesday. Um, and I know what that means. I know what it means to to give yourself into the body and just just feel like God's not being a part of what you're doing. You feel like you've forsaken God or the people are forsaken. You just get all sideways and so Monday you're just going, oh, I'm done. I'm going to work for McDonald's, yay. And God says, no, come on, come on. You know what it feels like on your brain. <laughs> so, but the truth is, God has this hand on us that He wants us to be His. So two reasons, two reasons. Um, but two things you're supposed to do with your second chance. One is glorify God. You were created for His glory, for His glory and honor. So even when you're going through really bad times, instead of going, God, why are you doing this to me in a bad, mean sense to God, like something's wrong with you, God, say, God, help me learn why I'm having to go through this with you so that I can grow. Every trial we go through is to mature us. The Bible actually says He puts trials on us to strengthen us and give us um, truth and understanding in life for His glory and our good. 
They're all for His glory and our good. So, first of all, just remember to glorify God. And then second, uh, the reason He does that is because He wants to be a ble- He wants us to be blessed. Blessed by serving Him. He wants us to be blessed by serving Him. I'm, I'm not an expert in very many things. I really, I really know very little about very little most of the But I can tell you this, since I was 17 years old, knelt right here at my favorite knot, and gave myself fully to Jesus, and said I'll surrender to the call of ministry. I've been trying my very best to serve God since I was 17 years old. But I want to tell you this, no matter what goes on, serving God is the greatest thing that you can ever do. Because I've done it most of my life, not even effectively, but just serving God is where you find joy, hope, and peace. I find people sometimes that are just miserable Christians. They are just wallowing in their misery, and they're going through a mess. They've created a mess for themselves and their sin, and they're doing all kinds of crazy things. And I say, hey, will you just come hang out with me today? We're going to go you know, to the widow's house and do this. We're going to go help this person do that. We've we got to go down. We used to go feed the home. We're going to go help feed the home for a little while. We've got to do all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, it just builds you back up. You go, whoa, that was kind of a fun day. Even in your misery, even in your misery, God wants to bless you by letting you serve Him. When you serve God fully, it blesses you, not just Him. And that's a big part of what you're supposed to do with those chances. Some of you need to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, settle your sin account with Him, and trust God. But some of us need to re-up and recommit our life and... uh we're not gonna, we don't need to follow Jesus with a sort of a, you know, God, you, I'll follow you, you just have to show me that you mean business. Uh, you don't need to fleece anymore. It's really time for us to stop fleecing God about all that. Um, and don't have a God's not always fair attitude, but I'll follow him anyway. Oh, poor pitiful me. When you follow God, just say, God, you're a life-giving God. I want to follow a life-giving God and find abundant life. Amen? Let's bow our heads together.